We uh, turn our attention now to the scriptures. Uh, in uh, the season of Lent, we're reading a number of psalms that are centered around confession, repentance, turning to God, acknowledging our sin to God. Uh, this morning, we're reading from Psalm 32. My wife was supposed to read, but she just took our toddler to the bathroom. Uh, and so we are currently without a reader. So that means I get to do it. Uh, and so we have a, a volunteer. My son would like to read it maybe, maybe some other time. Uh, but I'll read for us Psalm 32, and then we'll turn our attention to confession. Read with me. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance, Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or mule without understanding, which must, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. We are in a series in 1 Samuel, uh, in 1 Samuel 8 this morning. Uh, why are we studying this book? Well, I think in and through the history of Israel, we're learning some important things. But the main thing we're learning is that Yahweh, the God of Israel, he's king of everything. He's king over the Philistines. He's king over Israel. Uh, he raises up priests and leaders and kings of various kinds, and he puts them away as well. And, uh, you know, we've just finished the book of Judges, or in the, the biblical timeline, that's finished, where it said everyone was just doing right, what was right in their own eyes. And, and, and into sort of that dismal state of affairs, God the king, he's entering and he's putting things right. And today we're kind of looking at this passage where what's going to happen next? Samuel's old, so what happens after that? This is 1 Samuel 8. Lex is going to come read it for us before we get into it, and after that I'll be back. Lex. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel. The name of his second son, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then, as the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and said to him, behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now, appoint for us a king to judge us like the nations. But the thing that displeased Samuel was that they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in what they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them according to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them out of the land of Egypt till this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. 
they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king whom will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and some to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and his equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and olives and orchards and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and give them to your and give them to your young men and your donkeys and he will put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in the day that you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey Samuel and said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may be like the other nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard the words of the people, he repeated them to the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. All right, we're gonna spend some time reflecting on this text together. Uh, for many, many decades, hundreds of years, Israel has been through the same cycle which they are now in with Samuel. What would happen is because of their own sin, an enemy would come and invade their land, uh, they'd cause destruction, they'd oppress the people of God. After a while, Israel, uh, the people of God would cry out to him for help, uh, they'd repent, and God would raise up a judge like Samuel to deliver them. Now a judge in Israel was this combination of king and prophet and priest and civil magistrate. I mean, imagine for a moment that in Canada, we had someone who was both a Supreme Court unto themselves, but also sometimes functioned as the commander in chief of our military, and sometimes functioned as the archbishop that presided over all of the Christians. That, that's basically what judges did in Israel. So God would raise up one of these judges to defeat the enemy and rule the people. Now what inevitably happened each time? That judge would get old and they'd die. And particularly in that time, people didn't live as long. There were no 75-year-old presidents, very few multi-decade rulers, unless they started you know, as like a boy king or something. A judge getting old spelled trouble. Because even up until Samuel, uh, they, they never have hereditary judges. Uh, even if you read the story of Gideon, Gideon kind of rejects this idea. It's not a good idea to appoint, to appoint the children. So we do, when judges get old and die, it causes this problem. And that's where we pick up the story in 1 Samuel. Samuel's old, his time is limited, he's not going to be around forever. And the bigger problem is, is that the, the solution he's hit upon to appoint his sons to, to judge, it's, it's working out really terribly. 
And so this main solution to rulers aging that was employed in ancient times, you know, hereditary rule, it wasn't working out in Israel. Um, and if you look in verse one, Samuel recognizes he's getting old. He makes his sons judges. He's like, I'm gonna gracefully age out. These, these boys, they can get some experience. But Joel and Abijah, they start doing terrible things. Uh, it's interesting, if you've been with us through the first Samuel series, Samuel's sons end up quite similarly to Eli's sons. Remember them, Hophni and Phinehas, worthless men. They didn't walk with God. And right here, these aren't good judges either. Bluntly, verse three says, oh, they turned aside after gain. They're taking bribes. They're perverting, ju- uh, perverting justice. It's not what you want from your leaders. So Israel's at this crossroads. They are tired of the cycle of judges. They are tired of the sons of good men not turning out like their fathers. And so they say, no more judges. We want a king. But there's a problem with their request. That's what we're going to get into this morning. So first I want to talk about three, I have three things I want to talk about. First, we're going to talk about this aversion to holiness, this, this desire Israel has just to be like everyone else. And then we'll talk about the problem with getting what you want, as Samuel warns them about what, what getting a king means. And then the third, we'll say, we'll talk about how knowledge doesn't change us. So an aversion to holiness, look at verse four. The elders, the people of Israel, they get together, they come to Samuel at his hometown at Ramah, he's back there, and they say, there's a problem, you are old. They're pretty blunt. You are old and your sons are not good. They don't want Samuel's sons. They don't want Joel and Abijah running the show for the next uh, 20 years. Instead, in verse five, they ask Samuel, appoint a king who will rule over us. Now, there are some problems with this request and we'll get into it. But I do think it's a common misconception amongst church people, if you've heard this story before, that asking for a king itself was sinful. But I don't think that's the case. And and I'll give you two reasons why. First, Deuteronomy 17, it's part of the law that God gives his people. It actually specifically talks about the time when Israel will want a king. I'm gonna quote, this is Deuteronomy 17, starting at verse four. When you come to the land the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the other nations that are around me. It says, you may indeed set a king over you. So basically under the law, it's permissible for Israel to have a king. When they were ready, when they kind of got to that place as a nation, it was allowable under the law. Now the second reason I, think, don't, I don't think having a king was sinful is because Jesus in many ways functions as a king. A lot of who he is has to be understood through this lens of being a king that we always needed. So if kings are just sinful as an idea, then how should we understand Jesus? So I think, based on these two reasons, the request for a king, it's permissible. It's okay, monarchies, they're fine. They're, they're, not, they're not wrong for the people of God. I don't think they're wrong for society in general. Uh, the people of God can live under any kind of political system. So what's the problem then, maybe you're asking? If the king is not inherently a problem, what's the problem with the way they're asking? Well, the problem is this. The problem is what they want when they want a king what they want when they want a king. Look at verse five. They tell Samuel they want a king to judge them, comma, just like all the other nations. If you, if you, if you skip down to verse 19, this is repeated and expanded. Samuel gives them all these reasons that having a king will be terrible. And they say, oh no, we want a king over us so we can be like other nations, so the king can judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And maybe most damningly in verse seven, As the Lord speaks to Samuel, he says, look, their request for a king, it isn't so much a rejection of you, Samuel, though it frankly is a bit of a rejection. It's most importantly, most centrally, a rejection of God himself as king, as ruler, as judge. 
So that tells us something very important and something very interesting. An idea, like a king, an idea can be reasonable, rational, and permissible and still be godless. Things can be permissible and not helpful. Now, how can you tell? That's the important question, right? How can you tell if something is permissible but not helpful? Um, You can understand if an idea is godless in this way. You have to unearth why you want it. You you have to get underneath it and figure out why you want what you want. So let's apply that here. What does Israel want when they want a king? One thing is repeated twice. They want to be like all the other nations. They want to be like all the other nations. They don't want to be them. They don't want to be Israeli, Jewish, Hebrew. They want to be like everyone else. Or to state it negatively, they have an aversion to holiness. They don't want to be holy. Now, Holiness may sound like a strange word choice for what we're talking about, because for many people, holiness means serenity or purity or something like that. That's kind of related to the meaning of the word. The, The most simple and straightforward meaning is holiness means to be set apart, to be different, to be other. When we read that God is holy, what we mean, at least in part, is he is not us. He he is something else entirely. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He is different. So when, it, when God comes to Israel and says, be holy as I am holy, part of what he means is Israel's differentness is patterned after his differentness. They're to be set apart from other nations in the same way that God is set apart from all of humanity, from all of us. In effect, God has told Israel over and over through the law, don't be like other nations. Don't live like them. Don't think like them. Don't act like them. You are to be different the way I am different. You're to be unique the way I am unique. And now Israel comes along and says to Samuel, in effect, hey, Samuel, don't you know that this is the late Iron Age? Like, we got we to gotta get with the times. Don't you know this is, this is the early Bronze Age? We got to be relevant to the Bronze Age. Everyone else, all these other nations, they have kings that lead them into battle. Every other nation has a king at the top of their court system. We got to catch up. We're behind. See, what does Israel want when it wants a king? Well, they don't want God to be king. They want to be like everyone else. And that's really the heart of the problem because the people of God can't be like everyone else. Now, at points in human history, the culture uh, has closely resembled the church. And that usually is because the vast majority of a population is Christian. And so basically, the culture ends up with essentially the same values as the church. And when this occurs, it's, it's pretty easy to assume that Christians don't have to be different than the world around them. After all, people go to church and people who don't go to church, they kind of seem the same. Maybe 100 years ago in Canada, 75 years ago in Canada, this was sort of the situation. Was there that much difference between those inside and outside the church? But then there come points in history, which we are increasingly heading into, where the church and the culture diverge in more dramatic and drastic ways. If we aren't there already, we are, we are quickly headed there. There is an increasingly wide chasm between the average Canadian and the average Canadian Christian. And it's not just sort of theological choices, though of course that's where it begins, whether or not you believe in Jesus and follow him, but it just plays itself out in all these areas, how you think about money and sexuality and politics and free time and children and on and on. For instance, a recent report said that Canadians on average give 0.49% of their income to charity. Half a percent of their income to charity, your average Canadian. Okay. The traditional Christian view has been to give somewhere around 10% to charity. 
I bet 40 years ago, I couldn't find the data on it, I did some digging, but I couldn't find it. I bet those numbers were closer together, where the average church person and the average you know, non-church, secular person gave similar amounts, but no longer. In fact, depending on which tax software you use at tax time, if you give more than 5% of your money to charity, the software will warn you you're at risk of an audit because you're not normal. That's not what normal people do. You better be careful or the, the, the CRA or whoever, they're going to come after you and, and make you prove you've given this much money away. See, increasingly, if you're, if you're a Christian that takes the scriptures seriously, the cultural gap between you and your neighbors, it's growing. It's not shrinking. Or to put it a different way, if you're a Christian, you're getting weirder all the time. You're, you're, you're becoming more alien, more like, oh, that's like different. That person, I don't understand what's happening over there. Now, what happens next is we don't like that feeling, many of us. Maybe some of you like feeling very different, but we, we don't like feeling alien, we, we don't want to be different. And so we try to find, maybe there's a way I can be a little more like everyone else. So here's kind of the tricky part is we put some of these pieces together. You have to figure out what you want when you want something. You have to figure out the reasons you want to be like everyone, uh, everyone else. Because in some cases that may be fine. It's like I want to have the same winter boots as everyone else. That's probably not that big of a problem. But there may be other things that are a problem. When Israel wants a king, that's a fine thing to want. That's what Deuteronomy 17 says. But the reason they want it is a problem. It's a godless reason. They want it because they don't want God. There's a right way to want a king. But that's not the path Israel is going down. So let's do a couple of modern examples so you can see the parallels. Let's say you want to be famous on um, Instagram or some other social media platform, MySpace, you know, whatever. Um, and if you are a I'm a little older than some of you. If you are a Christian, you have to get underneath that desire and try to ask yourself, well, what do you actually want when you want to be famous on social media? Is it a job? Is it a way to pay expenses? You know, get yourself through university or whatever. Is it that or is it something different? What do you want when you want to be famous? See, the people of God, we have to walk this fine line. It requires uh, actually quite a bit of wisdom and self-knowledge. Because it's not always easy to tell. On one hand, we don't want to be unnecessarily alien to our culture. But, uh, you know, we want people to understand Christianity and Jesus. Maybe they'll join us. But on the other hand, at times, we have to learn a disregard of the world's ways and values. There are ways we will be different. And you have to ask yourself the hard questions. For instance, what do you really want when you want to retire young? What's, what's underneath that first desire? What do you really want when you want to own a, a second property or a cottage or whatever? You, you have to figure out the whys because some of these things, they may be neutral, they may be fine, but until you get underneath, you don't really know. And probably what you'll discover is some of the things you're pursuing are not good or right. And you'll end up realizing Christians always have been, they always will be a little bit off, a little bit alien. Here's the best way, I think, to think about it. If after church today, you, you drive up or take the bus up Wellington Street, travel east towards downtown, eventually, you know, Wellington becomes Somerset at that weird intersection by the LCBO, and then you'll cross the bridge, great view of downtown, and then you go up a big hill, right, headed towards downtown, eastbound. On that hill, you'll notice something curious. The signs aren't all in English. If you go into a Kowloon supermarket, you'll notice they have a different selection of food there than Superstore or Loblaws does. And if you walk the streets around there, you'll hear many languages spoken that are not English. It's because that part of our city is the, the original Chinatown. Now, it's more like Asia town now, but you know, names tend to stick. 
the cool thing is for people like me, I can go to Chinatown and even though I don't speak the language and I don't know how to cook the foods and, and many things are foreign to me, I can't, I can't understand the signs, um, they'll translate for me. I can walk into a restaurant there and, and they'll, they'll help me order something. I can go and experience a different culture and different language and different people. I think the people of God are intended to be a little bit like Chinatown. That when outsiders come into our neighborhood, they understand things are different here. The language they're speaking, not always the same. The culture, the traditions, the values, those definitely aren't the same. But even though it's different, outsiders can come from other neighborhoods, other parts of the city, and and they're welcome. And they're accommodated, and we translate for them, and we welcome them to experience the culture of God for themselves. See, but what the people of God must not do is abandon their differences simply because they are different. We must not have this aversion to holiness the way that Israel does. The temptation is there, it's hard, but I think this is what God is calling his people to. But let's move on. Let's talk about part two, the problem with getting what you want. So Samuel's displeased, I think that's putting it mildly, with Israel's request for a king. He probably feels feels personally offended. Uh, He's probably offended on behalf of his sons. Maybe he's offended on behalf of God. He's maybe triply offended. But it does show Samuel's character that what he does is he takes their request to God. He's angry. He thinks, man, these guys are foolish. They don't know what they're talking about. But ultimately, he goes and prays. And he's like, I'll take it to God anyways. And God tells him they're ultimately rejecting me. But if you look at verse 9, God says, it will give them what they want. He tells Samuel, just obey their voice. But first, solemnly warn them. And that's what exactly what Samuel does. He goes back to the people with, with, a, with a solemn warning. And before we get into the specific warnings that Samuel gives, I want to note that Samuel's warnings pertain to every king, even good kings. Notice Samuel's not warning about the abuses of bad kings. He's warning Israel, every king you ever have will treat you in the way that I'm about to explain, which is sobering. But how can we summarize Samuel's warnings? I think we can summarize it under this big heading. The king will take. The king will take, the word is used six times in this section. And just quickly, we're just gonna kind of whiz through these, all the things the king will take from the people. Verse 11, he's gonna take your sons. He said, you'll take the sons will be taken, some of them to serve in the army. They're gonna drive the chariots. They're gonna ride the horses. They're gonna run alongside the chariots. Some will become commanders, you know, of, of 50s or thousands. Other sons, though, they won't be in the army, but they will farm the king's land. They'll plow the king's ground and reap the king's harvest. Others will become, you know, blacksmiths, craftsmen of various sorts. They'll make weapons and equipment. Samuel warns people, the king, he's going to take your sons. Verse 13, the king is going to take their daughters. The women don't serve in the army in those days, but will serve in more domestic duties, perfumers, cooks, and bakers. Samuel tells the people, you want a king? Okay, the little boys, the little girls who live in your house, who might at this point determine their own future, they're going to be conscripted by the king. They're not going to have a choice. The king will come to your house and say, I need this person to serve you know, in my service. Third, in verse 14, the king's going to take the best fields and vineyards and olive orchards for himself and for his servants. See, if you read about the division of the land when Israel first comes into Canaan, um, there wasn't land set aside for the monarch. There wasn't like a portion of, of property allocated for a king. So the king's land, Samuel's saying, there's no unused stock it's going to come from. It's going to be forcibly taken here and there by the king for his own use. 
Now, did you know that 89% of Canada is crown land? <laughs> not, not owned necessarily by the people of Canada, but, you know, through a corporation in the name of the King of England. From all we can tell, the King of Israel owned far less than that. But we do see examples in the book of Kings, Ahab amongst others, where, where, the, where the king takes things from people, land and vineyards. Fourth, verse 15 Samuel warns the king it will take a tenth of the grain and the vineyard harvest. <laughs> I think this is kind of funny. Samuel warns, have you heard of taxes? Like there's going to be this thing where he'll just take 10% of all the grapes you have, all the wheat that you chopped down. It's, 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 all, it's just going to go to the king just off the top. He's going to take some. Fifth in verse 16, Samuel warns the king's going to take other assets from them. Their servants, their young men and women uh, removed to work on the king's land and farms. And sixth, finally, verse 17, the king's going to take a share of the animals. Essentially, every asset class you have, everything you own, every kind of thing you own, the king is going to come along and say, I'll have a little bit of this. I'll have a little bit of that. I'll have a little, little bit of this other thing, at least in part. The king will take. Even a good king will take. And in contrast, the end of verse 17, Samuel's extremely blunt. He says, hey, you know where this ends is uh, slavery. That, that, that's, that's where this thing ends. Functionally, you're going to have less control, less decision-making power, less autonomy if you get a king. And I don't think there's, I think it's pretty clear that Samuel's reminding them, you used to be slaves in Egypt. Now you're just going to be a different kind of slave here. And this warning by Samuel shows us something important. It's the danger of getting what we want. Israel's firmly convinced they want a king, but all they can see are the benefits. Did you see why they wanted a king? They're like, oh, kings are going to judge our disputes. That's really handy. The kings, when people come to fight against us, the king is going to lead our armies into battle and determine military strategy. That's really useful. There are benefits, but the benefits blind them to the drawbacks. And even if we ignore the spiritual ramifications we talked about already, uh, this decision is still going to have consequences. There's a danger to getting what we want. A recent survey of teenagers, ready teenagers, showed them that 20% of them want to be famous, either as an entertainer or an athlete or an artist. 20%. The next biggest category, about 15% of teenagers wanted to be uh, certain kinds of prestigious healthcare jobs, uh, doctors, veterinarians, dentists, things like that. I think it's worth asking the question, especially if you're in that stage of life, if you're a teenager or in college or university, and thinking about who you want to be or what you want to do. First, you have to ask the question from our first section. Well, what do you want when you want to be uh, famous or to be a doctor? That's the first question. But the second question is very important too. Is there a downside to getting what you want? And specifically, is there a spiritual downside to getting what you want? Often when we think about these careers I've mentioned, we think, oh, great money, great prestige, great whatever. But what about the hours? What about the temptations? What does a life performing do to a person? Now, I'm not trying to stop any of you from being a doctor or being a, being a singer or whatever. I just want you to be a doctor who's carefully thought about the downside. To use the language of this text, what will being a doctor take from you? Or let's say you make it as a professional athlete. What will being a professional athlete, what will that take from your life? It's not always just our careers, though. This, this past week, our small group was talking about how sometimes when God helps us, it doesn't always feel like help at the time. And I shared with our small group that how I really wanted to go to Queens for a university. And I've, I've told you some of this story before. It didn't work out because apparently you have to be really smart to go to Queens. Or uh, I didn't speak Gaelic. They had some reason they rejected me. I'm not really sure. Uh, but I was profoundly disappointed when I didn't get in. 
And I really feel like, God, you are not helping me out here. <laughs> I wanted to go there. I didn't go there. I went to the University of Guelph. But my years at Guelph were, were hugely influential for who I became. God used it for, for incredible amounts of good. And see, I think a lot of us consider, well, here's the upside of my prayers and my requests to God. But we don't stop to consider the downside. See, I prayed and prayed and prayed to get into Queens, but sometimes there are problems with getting what you want. And sometimes God is helping you by not giving you what you want. Jim Carrey in the early 2000s, he made a movie called Bruce Almighty where he accidentally becomes God. I don't really remember it very strongly. I remember a particular scene in it. Not so, anyways, not recommending the movie. I can't remember all of it. But one scene that sticks out in my mind is all the prayer requests are arriving as emails to him. It was, it was, it was the early 2000s after all. And, and requests are coming in for this and for that. Um, but there are millions of prayer requests about winning the lottery. And Jim Carrey, this God character, gets tired of answering them slowly. So he just like sends yes back to everyone. Everyone who, every, everything they prayed for that day uh, is, is an automatic yes. And the movie actually shows it's chaos. <laughs> it's a, the, the winners of the lottery, they all get like 25 cents each or something. It's all because it's all divided up. And there are car crashes. I can't remember exactly, but the world just, just falls apart. See, there are problems with getting what we want because we, we don't always want what's best. We don't always know what's best. And we don't always know, like Israel, what will be taken from us if God answered our prayers in the affirmative. And here's one way this plays out. If you are wrestling with unanswered prayers, I think this is really important. It may be very hard for you to see why God is saying no to you. But you also probably can't see all the problems that might result if God said yes. And I think when you read passages like this, we get a little bit more humility because we, we, like the Israelites, I think we're forced to admit there are problems with getting what we want. There are problems with getting what we want. Some, some of our things we want will take from us. I think we've got to sprinkle a little, little dose of humility on our prayer list because it's not, they're not always good things. But these kings will take from Israel. Now, part three, knowledge doesn't change us. The end of the story is predictable, isn't it? If we had stopped, you probably could have figured it out. Samuel makes an excellent six-point speech. He's outlining all the ways this is going to be bad. You're going to end up as slaves in your own land. You're going to pray to God, and he's not going to answer you because you really wanted a king, and now you have one. And does this excellent speech change a single thing? <laughs> Verse 19, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They're like these grumpy toddlers. You've told them it's cold outside. You told them to put a coat on. You told them they're going to be cold, but they don't want to wear a coat. <laughs> and they've made up their mind. And now these people are like, they listen to the voice of Samuel. And they basically just repeat their request with more reasons why Samuel should give them a king. And in verse 22, God says, okay. Okay. So here's the point. Knowledge doesn't change us. Reasoning doesn't change the Israelites. They had made up their mind. And I think this happens to us regularly, doesn't it? We think ourselves pretty open-minded. We're rational people. We like good arguments. We're open to contradictory evidence. But every study tells us the opposite. Tells us we tend to double down on our ideas, that we resist contradictory evidence. We, we entrench and we defend our positions even when we know things are long lost. See, what Israel will learn in the days to come is exactly what Samuel prophesied, that even the good kings, Solomon and David and whoever, they will take. And the bad kings will be disastrous for the land. They will learn, Israel will learn in the years to come from experience what they refuse to learn now from good counsel. Now one final question is this. Why did God say yes? 
Ever read this story and that like bothered you, rattled around your mind? Why did God agree? Why didn't God just say, nope, we're not doing it that way. It's not going to end well. Well, in the near future, I think we can say that great kings like David and Solomon would never have ruled. They'd never been kings without, without this story taking place. David, Solomon, Hezekiah, Josiah, others, they will play very important roles in the life of God's people. But I don't think that's the main reason God says yes. I think the main reason God says yes is because he knows that in the grand sweep of history, the table's being set for Jesus. Israel has learned through the book of Judges and this first, first seven chapters of First uh, Samuel, Israel has learned they can't function without a king. They, they, they need a king. But now they are about to learn a different lesson, that they can't function with a king. They couldn't live without one. They can't live with one. They will learn the insufficiency of political solutions to spiritual problems. And we're in a, we're in a political town, but listen, politics isn't our main problem. This is not our main problem. The human kings, what they're going to do is they're going to whet Israel's appetite for a true king who won't oppress them, who won't take from them, who won't steal from them, but who will love them and seek their best. And I think in a similar way for us, every time God lets us go our own way and we're harmed by it, every time God says yes to us, even if he knows it isn't the best, I think that's part of whetting our appetite for a king, for a savior who will save us from ourselves. Look, political systems, they come and go. Kings, prime ministers, they rise and fall. What, what we need is salvation. I mean, we need a new heart and a new mind and a new spirit that will help us choose the good. I mean, imagine for a moment, imagine you could be a person who loved the right things, who asked for the right things, who listened to wise counsel when it was given. If you belong to Jesus today, this is the kind of person he's fashioning in you because he, that's the kind of person he was, he is. He loved rightly, he prayed light, rightly, he lived wisely, and he is working by his spirit in us so that his people reflect him. May it be so. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for sort of strange stories like this one where you are giving the people what they want even if it's not the best for them. And so as we reflect on our own lives, our own, lives, our own cultural moment, please help us to live wisely. Please help us to discern the reasons why we do things, why we want things, what the downsides of things might be. Please lead us and guide us. Help us to walk in your ways and in your paths. Please keep us from temptation and evil. Friends, in Christ's name, we pray these things. Amen.